Spending Habits, the series that we've been in, uh, this is our fourth and final week. What we've been talking about is why it would be good for us to talk about how we spend our time and how we spend our money, specifically because the culture that we happen to live in here in the West, here in America, these seem to be the two hottest commodities, is time and money. And what we believe is that as people that are following Jesus, our lives are supposed to, in certain ways, look different than the world around us, in many ways, um, chooses not to follow Christ, or at least let their lives be informed by Christ. And so what we have done is we've allowed the nature of God, the character of his son Jesus, to shape and inform how we as individuals are supposed to spend our time and money, but not only we as individuals, but also how we as a collective church, a, a body of believers, are to spend our time and money as well. I'm going to give a very small recap of our first three weeks, but I do want to let you know that the audio versions of every single one of these messages that we've had um, are online on our website at reachway.org, and you can listen or catch up. And I really would encourage you to do that if you happen to have missed a week in this series because they all build on each other, and they're all quite practical with how we operate as a, as a, as a Reachway church. And so I would encourage you to do that. But uh, several weeks ago, in week one, we talked about uh, how the church, the body of people, a particular group of people, should spend its time. And what we talked about was that we should spend our time witnessing to what we believe is true and what we believe is possible. And that kind of served as a foundation for the why behind things like this gathering, behind things like having Reachway Kids available to our kids, behind things like neighborhood dinner and block parties and, and other events like that. In week two, we then talked about us as individuals, um, a particular shift that we could consider making when it comes to how we spend our time as people. And if you were here that week, we talked about this idea of living life from the chair rather than towards the chair only. We talked about very practically the importance of some quiet time, a time where every day, if you can, you're able to sit and be still, be not distracted from the world around you so that you can center yourself on things like who you are in Christ, the truths that God, what, is, what does God think about you, and, and what does it look like to be loved by him, and, and it's in those moments of non-distraction and quietness and stillness that we are able to also figure out what our purpose is, and not even, excuse me, not even what's my purpose for a career change or or whatever, it's, it's for today. Being able to recalibrate and figure out, hey, today, who am I going to encounter? And how am I going to treat them? Or what are some of the things that are headed down the road? Or, or some things that I don't know that are coming today. Am I solid enough in my faith in God to where I can withstand the things that I cannot see happening? Um, so we talked about, in the conversation of how we should spend our time, perhaps carving out uh, just a little bit more time for another specific purpose. If you looked at my calendar, maybe if I looked at yours too, we carve out time. <laughs> we, 
we plan, right? Uh, whether it's a job or a task around the home or around town or something like that. This is just another example of, hey, you, you carve out time. If we didn't carve out time for the things we prioritize, they wouldn't get done. So we talked about making a shift in our actual time management as people um, to spend some time, quite literally, in a chair. Um, last week, week three, we talked about how Reachway spends its money as a church, this particular church. We don't represent other churches in our denomination, necessarily, and we don't represent other churches in general. Um, we have a very specific model and formula to how we manage our finances, and um, we talked about this quadrant model, a lot of, a lot of numbers and things like that last week. Uh, sermon is online. Uh, be sure to listen to that. But what we concluded with last week is that Reachway really is poised for mission and that we do not necessarily put as many eggs as we can in any particular basket, if I can use that metaphor, so that we stay balanced as a group, we stay balanced as a local church so that we can impact our community, the city, each other, and things like that. Um, so be sure to catch up if, if you happen to have missed, um, missed any of those. But today, I want to I wanna wrap things up. We've been following a pattern of what does it look like for us in the church. And so today, last week, we talked about church finance. Today, we're going to be talking about individual household finance. And um, it is actually a topic that I get excited about talking about. Um, you know, there's a lot of church plants um, that do not talk about money because it's taboo, right? And because how dare you uh, tell me, pastor, what to do with my money? That is the whole reason why we're doing this series is because that's the kind of wall we put up around our commodities, it's the kind of approach we take to what's ours. And so what I'm hoping to accomplish today is a couple of things. One of those things is for us to realize it's not ours. <laughs> um, and that would just be one of them. But today when it comes to finance and household giving, I'm going to be talking about theory rather than practical things. I, I don't so much want us all to walk away here with a, a particular tangible challenge but I want us to walk away uh, from here this morning after having read three different stories from our scriptures of the, of the approach that we should take towards giving, what it looks like to um, be someone who receives things from God. That's what we believe is that the, these, these beautiful things are from him. And um, so th th that's my hope today to do this. I want to tell an old, old, old story. I want to tell an old, old story and I want to tell an old story, okay? And uh, hopefully with these three things, we can put together what it looks like for a household um, to be a giving household and, and to approach that and how God would use that, that in our lives. Um, to set the tone for our conversation, I want, to, I want to give you this phrase, and it's that part of what it means for us to live in relationship with God is to allow him to inform what we need. And that is the conversation when it comes to giving, is not how much do I have to give, but how much do I need to keep. And that is what has actually frustrated me as growing up in the church, 
of when money was talked about, it was generally give this amount. Why? Because that's what we do. And I don't think that's good enough. I think it's okay, but you know what that has done over the last 50 or 60 years? That mentality, when so forced, has actually, um, it hasn't compelled people to follow Jesus. Can you believe that? <laughs> that, that? That approach actually doesn't draw people into local churches, but it actually pushes them out of them. When it's talked about, we do this because that's what we do, no questions asked, it's not good enough. So today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be in a relationship with God and take that to a place of, because I follow and live with God, what do I have to do? We're going to take it from a place of, it's because I live in relationship with God, this is, what, this is how it informs what I need in life. So that's where we're headed. And the reason I want to head this way is because God created us. Did you know that? Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that it's us and we're here and we're left to our own devices and our own selves. But God created us. I, I think because of that, he knows us best. And I think because he knows us best, he would, he would be the one to know kind of what we need. And so I want to begin our conversation with our old, old, old story. This is a page two story. We're going to go to Genesis chapter two. Um, we're going to be here only for a few minutes because we have a few more stories to get through. But I want to look at uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Sunday School 101, right? When this all started. And I'd like to read verses uh, 15, 16, and 17 in Genesis chapter two. And these are going to be on the screen behind me as well. This is what it says. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I'd like to keep these verses up, and you might already notice that there's different colors on the screen behind me. Those colors represent different themes, and I get all of this from a guy named Walter Brueggemann. He's a theologian. He's probably the best living Old Testament theologian that the church has right now. Um, so Walter is going to help us this morning to show us that in these three verses, God is breaking down what it looks like to be human, what it looks like to live, and once again, how this informs what we need. What is being shown to us is that God originally organized life for us to have work to do. This is represented by the blue. For there to be freedom in our lives. This is represented by the green. But for there to be clear restrictions with our best interests in mind. This is represented in the orange. We get this big stuff. If anyone ever asked you, of, what am I supposed to do as a human being? This is, this is helpful. This is helpful. Where there is work for us to do, there's freedom for us in life. However, there are clear restrictions that are given to us with our best interests in mind from the one who created us. And this, of course, informs our human task 
this is a quote from Walter himself. The primary human task is to find a way to hold the three facets of divine purpose together. Any two of them without the third is surely to pervert life. What is he saying? We're not meant to have it all. That's what he's saying. We're not meant to have it all. And if we're not meant to have it all, then we need to stop trying to have it all. We need to stop structuring our lives for the acquisition of it all. So what Walter is doing is, is he's helping us break down some of the early human organization that happens in the Garden of Eden to figure out that there are things to do, there's freedom to have, but man, there are just some things that you shouldn't do because <laughs> it'll kill you. It perverts life. That's our old, old, old story. It's going to move us right into our old, old story. We're going to have this on, on the screen as well. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. We're, we're moving right along here. It's not too far from Genesis. It's just the book after. But where we catch up in the story of the people of God is that, is that the nation of Israel, God's people, have been in Egyptian uh, occupation for roughly 350 to 400 years. It's a very long time. It's generation upon generation upon generation of only knowing what it is like to be enslaved. And if you could even try to put yourself in those shoes, which is quite difficult to do, but essentially, any story that you've ever heard from a relative about another relative, you'd have to go back like 12 generations before the story is just, yeah, they were enslaved by the Egyptians which is heartbreaking, right? It's, it's, it's horrible. We pick up in this story with those people now free from Egypt, but as you could probably understand, having no concept of what it is like to live. They have been living for an empire for the last 400 years. They don't know what it is like to, for example, have a monotheistic religion. That is to say, a religion with only one God. Egypt has many gods. Um, Egyptian culture represents many gods. Um, for there to be freedom, because here's the thing. We see in Genesis that there's work to do, and boy, did the nation of Israel do work when they were in Egypt, <laughs> but there was no freedom, right? And so, um, and there were absolutely restrictions. Do this, don't do that, but there was no freedom there. So now, the nation of Israel is figuring out what it looks like to have balance, and God is helping them do that. So when you read about the Ten Commandments, when you read about what seems to be an exhaustive list of, of rules and regulations, this is God making the attempt to reorient a people around what it looks like to live with God now that they're free and they can actually do this. So we jump into the story in Exodus chapter 16. This is the chapter I like to call Magic Bread from Heaven. If you've read the story, this is the manna and quail scene where they're marching through the wilderness and if you're in the wilderness, if you're in the desert, then yeah, where's the food coming from, right? It's not Dollar General, unfortunately. Um, it, it needs to come from somewhere. And we're gonna jump into this story, Exodus chapter 16, starting at verse 16 where God introduces this concept of him providing what they need. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. This is from the mouth of Moses, by the way. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it for the next morning. See that? This was a daily provision. This is something that they got every single day. So Moses says, don't keep any leftovers in case there's none tomorrow. Trust that it's going to be there, so don't keep any of it for the next morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them, and I'd be angry with them too. Um, and so would you. <laughs> um, this is what's going on here. The lesson that God is trying to learn, or excuse me, teach to the nation of Israel is that God is a God who provides enough. That's a big word, is enough. And depending on what you're taking in as far as our Christian faith is concerned, perhaps there's a television channel that says that God gives you even way more than enough if you'll do this, this, and that. I have a hard time. I have a hard time with that. What The lesson that God is teaching is he'll provide enough. He will provide enough. And he encourages us to only seek what we need for the day. Our quest for excess produces rotten results, literally. Maggots. This comes from anxiousness. I know, I know I'm bringing a lot at you today. Um, but what's going on here is that God is trying to teach a people, reorient a people around what it looks like to live in relationship with God, teaching them that he is there for the enough. So have your trust in the enough. That's our old, old story. Here is our old story. We're going to fly into the New Testament. Actually, after the earthly life of Christ, we're going to look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul's a cool guy. I like him. And here's why. is because in his first life, he was one who worked for the, the empire, the Roman Empire. He worked for the military. And his actual job was to persecute Christians. His actual job was to make it harder in life for Christians to be. And he has this incredible encounter with Jesus where Jesus does exactly what we talk about what Jesus can do for us even today is make our lives new. And he encounters the Apostle Paul, changes his life, and the Apostle Paul is unleashed on this itinerant ministry where he preaches and visits churches and um, instructs churches on how to form themselves. And, and wouldn't you know it, someone who used to persecute Christians ends up giving us over half of what we call the New Testament through his letters to different churches. Something else, isn't it? 
power of what God can do in someone's life. We're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote, uh, to our knowledge, two different letters to the church in Corinth. So he's writing a letter to the Corinthians, as if he were writing a letter to the Peorians, people who live in Corinth. We're going to be um, in chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to have a different set of verses on the screen. So uh, allow me to read 2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Paul is speaking to a group of people that were well-known about a group of people that were not well-known and disliked by the well-known people. You with me? This is what Paul says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God, um, about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in giving. Paul is saying to a group of people that are very well known and had a good amount of money, you do a lot of good things well, but something you don't do well is what a group that you hate do. And that's be generous. The people in Corinth were caught up in a way of life where acquisition of knowledge and talents and resources, and the list goes on, is what proved righteousness, is what proved faithfulness. And it was fruit of, I am following God the best I can. What Paul is saying is, you're not quite there. You're kind of approaching this in a completely different direction. And so what Paul does is he takes a group of Macedonian, uh, Macedonians who were living in an impoverished country, and if you live in an impoverished country, then you are poor. You are in poverty. But what we read here in that second verse is that their overflowing joy and extreme poverty, what did that do? It welled up to generosity. And I don't know if that's the first connection that we would make to people who are in poverty. William Barclay, who is a New Testament theologian, says it's generally the people that are in poverty who are the most generous because they know what it's like to be poor. And I think he is absolutely correct. I think he is absolutely correct. And if, if, I think if we were to take that one step further, I think what we would find is that the life of Christ really does make sense because he's calling us to humility. He's calling us to generosity. And I think that Christ is just really able to exemplify that because he didn't have a whole lot of stuff. There wasn't a lot in between him and being exactly who he was calling us to be. Paul talks a little bit more, and then we get to a few other verses that I'd like us to read here. Uh, these will be on the screen behind me. This is still chapter 8, 
starting at verse 13. He talks about what it looks like for people in extreme poverty to well up into generosity. And then this is how he closes it out. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. So zone in right there that Paul is clearly saying the goal here isn't for rich people to get way poor now and then for them to just swap seats at the table with poor people. Listen to what he says. But that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Could you say that with me out loud? The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little, and that might sound familiar to you because that was our old, old story. What Paul is saying here is that giving is, is a means to an end. It is not the end. Generosity is a tool. It is not a command. Are you getting this? This is liberating stuff. For people who have been in and out of the church thinking that they must give a certain amount, that they must give a certain quota of some kind of increase or intake, this is liberating stuff to know that the goal is not for you to just do it just because. The goal is for some people who are up here to come down a little bit, but then for some people down here to come up a little bit. And it's the leveling out of the playing field that is the exact goal of the kingdom of God. It's that the poor have a seat at the table too. It's that the people at, on that side of the railroad tracks have a seat at the table too. The goal in the kingdom of God is equality. The goal of generosity is equality. Yeah. So here's the question, and it's not an opening line to a joke, although it sounds like it. What compels a poor Macedonian to financially give with joy? What compels a poor person who lives in a poor country to be generous? A faith that exceeds the gift itself. A faith that exists outside of the value of the gift. I think we have a hard time reorienting how we spend our time and how we spend our money because we have put so much stock and value into our time and into our money. I think we approach a dollar bill as though it was a hundred dollar bill. I think that's how we view money. We've put so much value that is not worth the actual value of the thing, and that's why we have such a hard time reorienting it. In many cases, that's why we have such a hard time giving it. But if we were to reimagine the conversation, keeping in mind that the culture around us says that time and money are the two most precious things, what if the people of God could say, but maybe they aren't? Or what if the people of God could say, they're valuable, but to be used for different reasons. To be used not for massive acquisition or to see how many decimal points I can increase in my account, but 
that someone's life could maybe get better as a result of my generosity. Spending habits, this whole series, it's a faith conversation. We, we got practical a few weeks, we got numbery a few weeks, but this is a faith conversation. It's letting our relationship with God inform our lives. That's what we talked about at the beginning of this. Our faith will never become a practical and tangible element in our lives, the desire of many Christians, if we continue to put our security, identity, and hope in practical and tangible things. I have heard from many people who come in and out of church, Pastor, I just wish my faith was real. I just wish that I could experience faith I wish that it just seemed like it wasn't just a church thing, but that my whole life was consumed by this God that loves me. I would say to that person, okay, so you want the intangible. You want the invisible. What's your relationship with the visible? We read in other parts of the scripture, if you can't get beyond what's in front of you, if you can't figure out how to work around the things that you can see and smell and touch, you're never going to be able to get to the layer that God exists in, which is a layer of faith, because we cannot see him. We can see evidence of him, and we can see evidence of him at work, but we cannot see him. And what we read time and time again in our scriptures is that if you cannot get to the layer of the unseen, which would mean working through the layers of the scene, that, yeah, the faith isn't going to seem as tangible as you really do desire it to be. I don't know what God has said to you today. I don't know what God has said to you in these last four weeks of this series. I trust that he has said something, and I trust that we have had ears to hear. As far as today's theme goes, I have one hope. It's not for you to to do anything except this, that all of you would be compelled to give a little bit more than you do right now. But this is exactly what I mean by that. If it's to reach way, great. I hope what we proved last week is that you can give in confidence that it's going to go towards the mission and the vision of this church body. I hope that what we do with our finances and our time as a church is that we are who we say that we are and that we take tangible steps towards becoming who we want to be. And if it's giving a little bit more to the next benevolence or community impact opportunity, great. We say very clearly what those things go towards. Maybe you give right now. Thank you. Give a little bit more. Maybe you don't give at all. Right? That, that's the spectrum. You give or you don't. Maybe you could start. And I hope what you're hearing from me, you, know, you, you notice I didn't say a tenth today. You know I didn't say that phrase today? I didn't say the word a tenth. Because that's not a good starting point. Um, zero to ten is insane. <laughs> I understand that. If God is asking for anything from us, it's a heart of generosity. It's not a quota of generosity. Amen. Yeah, it's good, right? It's liberating for me. Um, I'd love to talk more, man. If, if, 
if, if this has opened up some boxes for you, if this has closed off some other boxes for you, if, uh, kind of reworked some things that you've heard, I would love to sit down. I'd love to talk about this because this is important stuff. Um, just to finish that final thought, if that means giving to a neighbor or a family member or a friend or another organization, do it too, right? Um, it's good. 